You're listening to Queers, a podcast about politics and culture with Simon Copland and Benjamin Riley. Hi everyone, Benjamin here. Uh, just wanting to let people know that the episode you're about to hear, Simon and I talk quite a bit about uh, mental health and mental illness, including some discussion in very general terms about suicide. If that's something that you think will be distressing, just bear that in mind before you listen to the episode. Okay, now let's get into it. Oh wait, let's no, let's do that again because the like this the connect the connection's a bit shit for some reason, and yeah, it yeah. didn't. Um, yeah, uh, do it, do it again, do it again. Okay, uh, one, two, three. It's the fifth of April, two thousand and seventeen, and I'm Simon Copland, and I'm Benjamin Riley. Welcome to Queers. Each episode, we talk our way through questions on a theme, and this week we're talking about the idea of queers as vulnerable communities. From the Cooper's beer controversy we discussed last episode to the possibility of a plebiscite on marriage equality in Australia to, well, pretty much every large-scale political response from queers in recent years, our communities are increasingly framing ourselves as, quote, vulnerable. One of the core arguments against the plebiscite, for example, was that the Australian queer community was too, again, quote, vulnerable to deal with the debate that would occur. A plebiscite would increase hate speech, creating severe mental health issues for queer people across the country. Uh, This argument got so strong that it was used both by the ALP and the Greens when they defeated the eventual bill. Today we want to interrogate this concept of vulnerability a little more deeply. Why did our fear of the impact of harmful speech completely define our response to this issue? And why has it become a core way to frame marginalised groups and communities? What are the challenges of framing ourselves as a vulnerable community? So Ben, uh, let's start with hate speech. Uh, Do you think the Australian queer community was too vulnerable to deal with the plebiscite vote? And if so, what does that actually mean for us? So this is a... uh, This is... It's such a fraught question and it, it is... The so reason I it, it. Well, no, I know, and and the reason it's tricky to answer, I think, is exactly like points very much to why we saw the sorts of responses that we did, and it's because we, wh- whether this is true or not, the way that we talk about this stuff frames the stakes as really, really high. So, the way that people were talking, and like it's just, you know, this shouldn't, this shouldn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway because I. Like, just to, I don't know, make it very, very clear, we, I mean, I'm pretty sure I can speak for you in this this instance, Simon, we care about the mental health of queer people, we care about the mental health of queer young people, we don't want people to be needlessly suffering, we don't want people to be killing themselves, all of that stuff. Yeah, fine, fine. I can can agree with that, I guess. Yeah, totally. Like, it's, you know, all of that really should go without saying, but again, I'm going to say it anyway. The, the way that the debate around the plebiscite was framed was often literally that it would prompt speech from opponents of same-sex marriage in the media that would directly be the cause of young queer people killing themselves. This is how high the stakes were in the way that that debate was framed. And part of the problem with this whole issue is that as soon as you put things in those terms, again, whether it's tr- true or not, and I think we're probably going to get into that a little bit to the extent that, you know, you can make a call about something like that. You say that and you just shut down debate. Like, you, you kind of can't go anywhere from there. Yeah. Um, and and something I'm certainly very interested in here is is kind of interrogating this a little bit in a space where we can go, okay, let's just 
in a in a safe way take that idea apart a bit um you know outside of the context of a really kind of what feels like a high stakes public debate because we we couldn't do that when we were having this conversation in the in the media um whether or not the Australian queer community was too vulnerable to deal with the plebiscite vote i mean i personally think that the claims uh, of of how detrimental the impact would be on people's mental health were probably overstated um, it by the queer community it's virtually impossible to to know something like that i mean who who knows um, yep, even yep. if it did go ahead and and you you could look at um you know, st- mental health stats are notoriously difficult to gather and difficult to interpret. Uh, so even if you had... give sort of reasons why a, a mental health issue might be an issue. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, there are such a kind of complex range of factors that contribute to, um, you know, various poor mental health outcomes for people. Uh, so, I mean, who... Like I said, I think it was overstated, but who has... Who knows? And the point is that, you know, we, we, we can't really know that sort of thing. I mean, there are studies that link things like homophobia to poor mental health outcomes, and that seems perfectly reasonable to me in a broad sense. But the idea that a specific kind of spike would have such a detrimental impact to the to the queer community, I think, is, is um, highly debatable and... Even if it did, and this is maybe a tricky thing to say, but even if it did, I don't think that's necessarily then still a reason not to do it. Mm. Um, I think uh, this is the challenging point. Yeah. Um, and it's, and like, it's, again, it's kind of when you're starting from the position of like kids will die, it's really hard to, it's really hard to say that because obviously, like, no life is worth is worth that. I mean, you, you just can't kind of... you Like, maths like that doesn't... You, you can't do that. Like, like mm-hmm. you know, no no life is, is worth any any anything like that, it's, really. It's sort of setting up this thing of, like, how many kids are you willing to sacrifice to get this right? And that is totally. such, a, such a, a an awful position to be put in, to have, you know, to, to, to frame... I think it's a really difficult way to frame a debate. It really goes to what you're saying about sort of shutting down any discussion beyond that it's sort of you know any any kid that dies and it, and of course you know going back to your reiteration we don't want people to have these mental health issues but that real that sort of framing definitely shuts down the debate very quickly totally because it's like if you accept the terms of that argument the answer is of course none like of course none you know mm, mm. um but you know hopefully we can have a conversation here that that doesn't accept those terms or at least problematizes them yeah i think I think there's two two things I'm thinking about um, based off your initial response. I think the uh, what we just said before, the sort of the challenging way of thinking about uh, how this sort of shuts down sort of discussion and makes it really difficult to pursue is is a really valuable one to think about. And from a lot of the perspective that I had during this debate, what I really thought about was a situation in which for ten years. A community, a queer community or queer movement has been fighting for a particular legal right. And it got to a point where people weren't happy with this place, but people got to a situation where the, the most likely outcome to achieve this was to go to a national vote on this issue. And what, what I thought was, you know, um, firstly, I thought most social movements, if they got to the point where they were forcing governments, you know, who were reluctant to have a referendum on the issue and were had the opportunity to go out and talk to 
a whole swathe of the population about their rights would be like cheering at that opportunity um, because their issue would suddenly be on the top of the national agenda. And that's the kind of place where I thought we would want queer issues, where we'd want to be have the opportunity to tell our stories and to tell stories of discrimination and oppression and all that kind of stuff. But what it sort of, the reaction to that, what it suggested was that, you know, and you sort of talked about how, you know, if we go out and push this, then there'll be a backlash from right-wing people and that there'll be a sort of this, then this backlash will be so intense that we can't deal with it, which sort of suggested to me that the whole concept of pushing of our rights, which automatically, which, you know, any sort of pushing of a social agenda results in sort of some sort of backlash. It's that's sort of inevitable that sure, people will sure. respond to it. The idea is, well, okay, maybe we should, you know, is, is the, the ultimate outcome is maybe we should just stop pushing an agenda because it results in a backlash. Um, and that backlash might, might make us too vulnerable to deal with it. And I, and I think that that's, it's sort of a, maybe a, an extreme conclusion, but it is the, the logical conclusion of this sort of stuff. Hey, let's not push this because there'll be a backlash um, and it'll come back to hurt us. And that's sort of the conclusion that I saw being drawn out of this debate. And I think that that was really, really difficult, um, really problematic way to deal with this. And then the second element of that, and I think it ties in for me, was that I think that in creating this framework, we potentially made ourselves or we made ourselves feel more vulnerable than we actually are. Um, And this is something I'm not sure if you experienced this, but it's something I really noticed over the period of the debate is a real talking to other queer people and sort of being in social spaces, I noticed a real dampening of the mood across the period and where these arguments about sort of uh, discussions, public discussions about same-sex marriage got more and more sort of negative over over time and people were feeling, I noticed it, I noticed a lot of people increasingly feeling that, um, uh, increasingly expressing a feeling that, you know, any discussion is something that hurts them as a per- it hurts them, for example. I remember being in a conversation with people and saying, um, you know, someone was talking about when people talk about same-sex marriage in their workplace, when straight people talk about same-sex marriage in their workplace, they're like, they were saying, you know, it's really hard because I'm in this situation, they're talking about this issue and, you know, and then I realised that they're talking about my life and that, you know, that that's really hard that someone's talking about my life in that sort of abstract context. And I kind of understood that but it was a very different position to what I would have ever heard a few years ago. Where totally. I it's, people... God, I mean, part of me just wants to... I mean, this, this will sound like a real asshole thing to say, but part of me is just like, welcome to living in the fucking world. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Like, queers have been shat on for a really fucking long time, to put it very, very crudely. Mm. Like, you know, to some degree, that is always going to be true. That's yeah. all. We are different, and we will always experience persecution on the basis of that, and hopefully we can mitigate that. But... To some extent, it's something that we will always have to deal with. Yeah, but also there's two other points. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. But also, like, firstly, politics is about people's lives. So any political discussion is about talking about people's lives. So we're talking about asylum seekers, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about welfare, we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about defence, we're talking about people's lives. You can't just go, well, this particular discussion about people's lives is just too much to deal with. So we can't have that conversation. Um, and the second element I have forgotten. I just, I just wanted I to... Um, I, I just wanted to go briefly back to your first point as well. I'm not sure yep. I'd agree with that. I think that a big part of the way that the, um, like that, I suppose you, that idea, uh, that the logical end point to, to saying that we're too vulnerable to deal with conversations about our rights means that we'll just stop pushing for things. Cause I think that that was very much couched in 
the and maybe this was a fig leaf, I don't know, but in in the argument that there were other there, there are still other pathways mm. forward on this issue. So I think that um, like I, I I was very interested in the time in the question what do we do if this is our only way forward? I mean, you know, not that marriage is an issue that I really care about all that much, but, um, you know, there's something kind of philosophically interesting there, which kind of pushes the point of like, how much are we willing to deal with it if it is the only way forward to get this thing that we want? Um, Which, and and that's not the way the question was being framed at at the time. So I'm not sure that has really been put to the test yet. Um, I think this actually brings me back to the point that I just forgot, Um, which is, I think that, the other interesting element of this is, and I think back to some of the history of uh, of a gay rights movement, and we, we've spoken a few episodes, a number of episodes ago, for example, about coming out and the political process, the, the, the history of the political history of coming out, which really was about a situation in which uh, queer people said we need to be talking to people around us to make them comfortable with queer, you know, with queer people existing, that, you know, and all of the evidence that suggests that if you know a queer, you know, if you know a gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual person, that you're more likely to be um, accepting and welcoming of those people, of the broader population of minds. Yeah. So they're like the number and, one predictor. Yeah, yeah and, and I think that uh, the, the, the interesting situation, I guess, was when I talk about the sort of shutting down of debate or saying we're not going to be fighting for our rights, is that what I, what I saw was a, um, a removal of that debate, uh, and maybe this is me sort of refining my argument a little bit, it's removal of that debate from the public sphere or an attempt to remove that debate from the public sphere, from a sphere that go about that goes about trying to change people's minds on the street and trying to get people engaged at that mm. level and putting it into the space of, of, a, of a sort of the halls of parliament and, um, and sort of doing it that sort of behind back doors. And, and obviously that sort of halls of parliament stuff has a lot of that, um, still has public facing stuff that's occurring quite often. Um, but there was a, a sort of, uh, a, a statement that says that having to do this with with the with the general population is too hard. So we just have to be able to focus on these you know two hundred and something people in Parliament, and that's that's our that's our main focus. And I think that that is where I would see a sort of a, a, a different avenue in which uh, a different approach in which we have sort of um, shutting down this potential demand, opportunity to to sort of fight for our rights on the streets almost rather than in the halls of of of, of power. Mm, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, you know, I, I again, I suppose I would see that as, um, uh, you know, still at least the appearance of a kind of avenue for for mm. moving forward, and and still the kind of desire for change. But I like, I definitely feel a bit uncomfortable about the idea of um, that we would just, you know, distrust um, the public so much, especially when you know we were at a time when like while all this conversation was going on um there were huge attacks going on in in the press and in parliament on the safe schools program yeah. which is something that have we actually I, I, we have talked about it on the podcast that's right yeah we have talked about um, safe schools yeah uh you know and and there was this weird sort of dissonance for me between the fact that we were saying uh let's not have this public conversation about marriage we need to be protected while there was this horrible conversation going on very very publicly uh, about you know, another kind of significant queer issue. And it seemed also disconnected to me at the same time as you have like 10 years of parliament blocking action on marriage equality. Yeah, totally. When, totally. when the population, the general population's position is, has changed, has changed significantly and is, yeah, is, is at least according to all reputable polling is wild, wildly in favour. Yeah, uh, totally. And I don't, I don't quite know what that, 
what that is, you know. I I have become, you know, as I said, so skeptical of this this message that we get constantly from the kind of, uh, you know, LGBTI elites, I suppose. And you know, and I should absolutely say uh, up up front that you know, arguably. Uh, you know, I know a lot of these people, and arguably I fall into that category, and and certainly mm-hmm. ha- have a lot of these. Yeah, well, yeah, totally. So, so I wouldn't want to um, kind of exempt myself from any uh, implications here. But um, the line that if we just work softly behind closed doors to make change happen is just, you know, we've been hearing that and saying that for for as you said, a decade now. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just a little aside. It's always. Uh, a lot of the people who uh, would say we need to work softly and behind closed doors and quietly, who then on the anniversary will always celebrate the Stonewall riots, and uh, that always that always just gives me a little annoyance because not, to be, yeah. not to be too cynical, not to be too cynical. <laughs> Let's. I think maybe um, what I'm what I'm interested in. Maybe we can go back to this question of vulnerable. Um, you know, maybe it's worth thinking about what do we actually mean when we say we're a vulnerable community, sort of stepping it away a little bit from the plebiscite, what do we actually mean when we say that? And, you know, and what does that imply and what are the sort of consequences of that um, yeah. sort of in other areas? Well, when, I mean, when you were talking uh, about, when when you were talking about this before, I, I was just thinking that, you know, this is, this stuff is hardly unique to queer communities. Mm. I think uh, identity politics generally has become, this this idea has become quite big in in identity politics kind of driven uh, movements. You know that, um, and you know you you talked a bit about hate speech in in the opening, which which has become a real sort of focus for uh, group for groups kind of. I don't even know how. I, I guess um, fighting for. Uh, I mean, what exactly? That's kind of an interesting question. Protection for marginalized communities, rights for marginalized mm. communities, just the betterment of marginalized communities. Um, whether whether that be you know women or or uh, you know people of color or um, you know various queer people or, or whoever like there is this real focus on uh, on harm I suppose yeah, and yeah. on specifically the need to be protected from harm usually on the basis of speech but you know not always I think you know there's obviously a lot of really good stuff. Um, going on around very direct things like police violence, for example, against people of color in 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 the U.S. Um, and I wouldn't want to uh, I wouldn't want to put it all in the same basket in that way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you're right in that the uh, you're 100 percent right, and this is something that you see really um, uh, becoming really prominent across a range of different uh, forms of identity politics uh, and. Um, and it's and it's something that I've noticed that has become more prominent in recent years. Definitely, I think a lot of it um, is connected to the very nature of that sort of form of politics, in which it's sort of um, when you frame yourself in that kind of way and, and that state um, set of uh, sort of stated identity, and then there's a sort of a sense of this, uh, even the term marginalised creates a sense of um, being sort of injured in some way or having some sort of uh, uh, some sort of status put on you where some, you know, a particularly I think in a context where we have an, this sort of essentialization of identities where you are this essentialized identity and you're just sort of having this often ahistorical perspective on being injured by some somebody oh my god um, were we i can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast i feel like maybe we did but that story that you told me about 
the experience you had at the Homosexual Histories conference just like blew my mind. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you about um do you know oh uh about somebody talking like refuting the idea that uh oh, certain yeah. certain groups have it better off now than they did in the past yeah 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 so we had the the um the discussion of the homosexuals history conference i can't remember if we've talked about this on here or not yeah i'm not sure uh, there was a there was a discussion at that conference um where basically someone argued that um for queer people, for uh, LGBTIQ people on measurable data, measurable data regarding rights, regarding legal and social rights, and they and he, this person was very specific to say legal and social rights, on that data, um, things are better off for queer people ten, now than they were 10 years ago, and sort of very clearly stated that, and sort of created this uproar within this, within this conference, where people were sort of um, you know, and, and uh, he got very quickly sort of shut down as being a, a gay white man who who um, who didn't understand what it was like for a lot of other people, other vulnerable people. And I'm sure that term was used. Um, and I don't think, you know, it was it was quite funny because he wasn't claiming that he wasn't talking about things like, you know, economic marginalization, all that kind of stuff. Uh, he was talking specifically about legal and social rights and said that it's better for queer people now than it was 10 years ago, you know, or 20 years ago when, you know, gay men were literally dying in the street because of HIV and, you know, not dying in the street, but were dying because of HIV AIDS. Um, or, you know, 10 years before that when they were, like, you know, being probably murdered by police. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, and it was it was really interesting for me seeing how... You know, I think I think a lot of the problem, a lot a lot of that situation was people who were who were sort of in the middle of these sort of big debates about the plebiscite and safe schools in particular, and had spent a lot of time under attack and felt, um, for, at least from my perspective, they, they came a lot of across a feeling very constantly under attack, and I think that that probably has a major impact on people, and sometimes it's hard to step out from that and to think, well, this these sorts of attacks are not as bad as they were twenty years ago. And which is um, and which is in also in no way to downplay the kind of ha- oh, how yeah. much that that experience sucks, you know, like absolutely, like this is, and I I want to make it clear that 
certainly from my perspective, you know, none of what we're saying is is to any way minimize like the the trauma that people do experience and and mm. you know living as other in a society now is hard a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um and yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. And and I think that's actually a challenging a, a particularly challenging element of this discussion is it's really hard to Anyway, it's nice to have this discussion in this sort of space rather than the heat of the of a political debate because it's it's hard to remember that make... we will be putting this out into the world Simon and I, I know, people I know. <laughs> people we will be open to <laughs> you know um, yep. <laughs> but I, you know I think it's 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 you know in that in that heat of the political debate I totally am sensitive to the sort of the real feelings that people are having and the 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 feelings of being under attack and the the um, the difficulty of being in that situation and the situation of being another in in a society and and feeling ostracised and that sort of stuff, um, I, t- I totally understand it. Um, uh, it's just the the challenge of I guess stepping back a little bit and being able to look at some historical perspective and to to think about that situation, but also going back to a point that I made before about sort of how the the uh, the very language of vulnerability I think creates more vulnerability in many ways. Um, and I think that that is a challenge and I'm not, the solution is not, you know, just to be like, well, just, you know, to, to go to the opposite end and say, you know, it just gets better fine. and everything, yeah. you know, you know, don't worry, it'll get better. You know, yeah, you I, hate, you I hate that stuff too. Yeah. I hate that stuff too. You've got to be realistic. Um, but you know, there's, there's, there's something to be said about also building strength, um, and building resilience within a community rather than sort of always thinking ourselves as, as, as inherently weak or, just, just always weak, and I think that that's a lot of what um, has um, been has sort of what's a lot of what the message is is that we are just weak, uh, and I think that that is um, different to being marginalised in many ways. Um, it's to say that we don't have you know, and I think that there's a real challenge with sort of the sort of weakness, uh, sort of saying that we're just weak. I think that's I think that's a big problem with it. Mm. I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I would say that it's different. I think it's it's probably more specific. Yeah. Um, I just was kind of thinking about what you said about um, that talking about ourselves as vulnerable kind of uh, exacerbates vulnerability. And mm. I think that, like, I, I agree in a, in a specific sense, um, which I think goes back to the question that you originally asked, and that I feel like I I didn't actually answer, which is <laughs> you know what what is vulnerability and what what does it mean to actually. Like what are we what are we saying when we we call ourselves a vulnerable community? And I think that often, not always, but often, and and this goes to the way that um, we've been framing this. We're, we're talking about mental health, yeah. Um, and when you put it in those terms, I mean things like talking about ourselves as vulnerable, uh, exacerbating vulnerability. That that's that's true. I mean, you know, there's there's kind of. Um, there is uh, research to, to support that that kind of a view that, like you know, the the, the attitudes that we have to our own health dr- can drastically change kind of health outcomes, um, particularly when it comes to to mental health. Uh, that's also you know not to say that it's like not real or that it's all kind of just about your attitude or some kind of mindfulness bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, like clearly <laughs> clearly it's more um, it, it, it's more lived than that and it's it's more complex than that, but. I mean, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about why you think we've ended up in a place where, like, mental health is almost our primary measure of our health as a community or our, our 
I don't know, our, our, our general sort of well-being as a community? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I don't know the answer to it. I think that there's a potential few things that, that you know, that are, there are a few parts to this. I think probably the first is the increasing discussion of mental health in broader general society um, that um, has occurred over the last maybe 10 years or so, maybe even less, um, where mental health has become an increasing point of discussion of an increasing point of political debate. And naturally, that has resulted in, in queers sort of um, looking at the mental health statistics of queer people and, and, and rightfully saying, you know, this isn't good enough. Um, and I think this might sound really cold or really awful i think a second element of it is a um uh, yeah i think is a political strategy that or it has been used as a political strategy even if it's not being thought about in that kind of way as a way to frame um particular debates um in particular you know if we go back to the plebiscite it was clearly used it was clearly developed uh well not even developed you know as a like a you know backroom developed but it became a core part of the political argument um and you can see how that developed across time if you know from my memory of that uh you know a lot of it started off off a lot of the debate started off with the idea that this isn't you know that the vote isn't necessary that people shouldn't be voting on yeah. rights yeah, and, that's what really... and that you know because like i i i did at the time and 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 still do think the plebiscite's a bad idea and it's essentially for those reasons that it's mm. it's not it sets a kind of to me, a worrying precedent for, for how we legislate social issues in, in this country. Yeah, yeah. I'll disagree with you on that, but we have to do that another time. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, but I think what you did see there is the sort of, you know, as the as the discussion about the plebiscite sort of moved on, new, new arguments came in and the mental health argument was one that stuck a lot, uh, just, it just stuck a lot more. Um, in many ways, yeah, and, there, and then it, you know, and and it's it's noticeable when that things sort of stick that you know that it becomes part of the, the core political strategy, um, and I think that you know those two combinations, you know, and and it's not just in terms of the plebiscite. I think you see this a lot, um, you know, probably connected to the increasing discussion about mental health generally. We're seeing the sort of the ability to use that in political arguments or strategic arguments about. Um, about different issues, different queer issues, increasingly, and and it's clearly working in a strange kind of way. You know, at least it definitely worked, worked to defeat the plebiscite, which was a um, a strategy that was um, you know, which was which which was a, a position that people took, and you know, and um, uh, and this was an argument that was very very um, well used to, to help defeat mm. that piece of legislation. I mean, the pro- the problem with these arguments. Uh... Is that they're so they kind of limit our future scope for political for like how we fight for political change mm. um, going forward. I mean, and and it you know by um, making those mental health arguments the kind of primary way that we that we fight against things, uh, it just like it just completely takes away our agency and yeah. you know says that we. Well, yeah. I mean, it essentially forces us to kind of rely on the state, for example, to um, to protect us because mm. we're we're saying that. Um, yeah, I don't know. This thought is a bit half formed, but I just yeah, I get the sense that it 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 makes it harder for us to in future argue for change 
if there's going to be any sort of backlash at all because it uh, we've just said that we can't handle it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's I think the mental health line is very reactive in a sense in that it's very uh, we have this um, imposition placed onto us that is causing this mental health problem. Uh, we need someone to stop that from occurring. Um, the state is the natural one to do that, you know, is, is the one that was turned to, um, you know, you need to protect us. Uh, and in turn, it becomes, you know, when you think about things like hate speech, you know, a lot of discussion now about um, legislation to limit hate speech and to, you know, a lot of legislative measures to deal with that, which is very much a situation of asking the state to protect us, um, you know, and, and going back to some points we made before, without sort of recognition that is often the state, it is often governments, it is often parliamentarians who are the ones that are perpetuating this very sort of speech, yes. who, we then, who we're then turning to and to ask to pass legislation to protect us from it somehow, um, and in the in that consequence, I think that you know the consequence is um, that in being reactive in this kind of way, it stops us to th- stops us from being able to think about what is the proactive agenda, what is the positive stuff we want to actually deal with, what is the kind of community that we want to have you know what is the kind of society we want to have that is not just about a state protecting us from the evil bigots that are out there somewhere who want to you know who want to who want to scream at us and and you know you know there's there's very little space in that discussion to think about a proactive future that that tries well, to sh- sure. actively I mean, shape society you know what is what is removed in that conversation is community essentially mm. and I was, I was just kind of thinking that like how sort of um I'm going to use a, a, a dirty word, um, which is neoliberalism. I, you mm-hmm. know, kind of, <laughs> I know Simon shudders. Um, but thinking about this kind of rise in, in um, the vulnerability or sort of mental health arguments for uh, marginalized people, I think, you know, you talked about the sort of increasing, the fact that we're increasingly talking about mental health generally in society. And I think that's true, but I think that there is a, an extent to which that's a kind of, uh, that's a function of neoliberalism that, 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 that the way that we talk about mental health is very individualized. It's very pathologized. Um, and, and it's basically a way of kind of dislocating social problems onto the individual and saying that, you know, this is, um, uh, something that needs to be dealt with on the individual level through kind of you know whatever whatever means and in in a funny kind of roundabout way despite the fact that um the oh no this isn't even true i was going to say that that so much of 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 queer vocal queer politics is about depathologizing queerness although i would argue that the born this way uh oh, rhetoric is is precisely the opposite of that which yeah. is why I, I kind of second guess myself you know this um, in a roundabout way, these kind of vulnerability arguments are about pathologizing queerness, are about, you know, saying that, um, in effect, uh, you know, being queer is to be mentally ill. Yeah, absolutely. Or at least at the mercy of mental illness. Absolutely. And this is, you saw this a lot in the in the plebiscite discussion of the, uh, you know, they will just, you know, what this will do is create lots of lots of mentally ill queer people, you know, that we are just inherently at the mercy of our of mental illness um, and, you know, and, 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 and it was taken to that extreme extent of, you know, uh, you know, we'll just see lots of people killing themselves, committing suicide as if we as people and we as a community, you know, um, 
had no agency in the capacity to try and stop that from occurring. It was just going to happen to us. It was so just, just going to happen. I'm just going to say something here to remind me to put a content warning at the start of this episode because <laughs> we're talking about suicide enough that we probably should. Yeah, yeah. Good idea. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think it was just a, you know, this is just going to happen to us. And uh, there was no little agency in there and little space for a community to be able to stop that from occurring. Uh, before we wrap up, I mean, do we have alternatives to this? Can we talk about the fact that many queers do face kind of difficulty and hardship and, and persecution and marginalization without, you know, putting it in terms of this dichotomy of, of vulnerability and the need for protection? Mm. I think, I don't know, I go back to the plebiscite and think about some of the arguments that I was making at this period, point of time about the vulnerability that people might have Um and one of the thoughts that I that I often had is that often the way to deal with that sort of vulnerability is to get involved or help people get involved in community or get involved in the fight. And so it's a lot easier, I think, to deal with the political hate speech um, in a situation in which you are out there with your colleagues or comrades, you know, campaigning on this issue and you have people around you who can... Who can who can help you know help you do that, um, and I think that this goes back to that question of community that you know I think we keep coming back to in this podcast um, quite often um, and seemingly rightfully so because it is such a, a, a difficult concept uh, particularly for queers, um, but the investment in community in and the investment in the political fights in particular in many ways for me feels like the way to deal with the realities that people face and to help them build strength in in that space. And so it's getting rid of that sort of individual pathologization of queers and saying, no, well, as a, as a community, um, no matter how fraught that is at times, um, as a community, we can work together and you can, if you are feeling vulnerable, you can come and join us, come to this thing and join us and you will probably feel a bit less vulnerable because you will see the strength of people around you. That's like a sort of, potentially utopian vision of it um sure but i mean i think like you know i i would i would i would say it's even more basic than kind of encouraging people to get involved in political action through community i feel like the the and this is why i raised neoliberalism before because you know in in my view at least it is explicitly about the 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 deconstruction and the destruction of of community the kind of individualizing of of society um the yeah, the the attempt to construct and create community and reconstruct community is in and of itself in the con- in the context of neoliberalism a, a highly political act um, and and an increasingly difficult one. So it's kind of all well and good for us to sit here and say that that's a, a pathway forward, um, but it's absolutely easier said than done um, in in the face of kind of you know, all sorts of kind of social and cultural forces that, that individualize us and, and, and um, tear us apart from one another. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a cheesy thing to end on in some ways, but, you know, I think it is as basic as trying to find a sense of connection with other queers and that, you know, community coming out of that is, is really, is really, an important thing to fight for in and of itself. Yeah, 
I think it is not just... I don't think it's a cheesy way to end in many ways. I think it's actually a really strong way to end because I think that... And it's not just for queers. I think it is for broader population that that is a really important need at this point in time. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, maybe that's it for us today. Uh, Thank you, as always, uh, for listening. Uh, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode. So we think that we... we, (laughs) Actually, this is going to be coming out... um, probably a few days after we record it, but we had a bit of a chat uh, before we recorded about what our new schedule is going to look like. And it's likely going to be coming out earlier in the week a little bit. So I'm not sure whether, um, so I guess it'll be a little over two weeks from when this episode comes out is probably Mm. when, when we'll transition to the the new um, sort of production schedule. Yeah. We, um, yeah, so we'll, that that's potentially a kind of continually evolving thing, but we'll keep people posted. Uh, in the meantime, uh, you can catch us on queers.podomatic.com as always, or subscribe to us on iTunes. Please review, rate. Uh, you know, it always certainly makes me feel happy when new reviews go up. And yeah, more nice. importantly, it helps other people find us. Uh, we didn't talk about this at the start of the episode either, but... Um, Email. We have an email address. We're getting emails. They're great. We want more. We want all of the emails. Um, and our email address is queerspodcast at gmail.com. It just makes me feel really happy when people engage in the content and in the podcast. It's really lovely. Um, and finally, nice. uh, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Simon Copland. And I'm on Facebook at Simon Copland Writer. I'm also on Twitter and I am at Ben C. Riley. And that's all for today and we will see you all next time. Bye.